Hi, I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode, I talk with Sean Greminger, Director of Health Policy at the Purchaser Business Group on Health. We discuss the issues most critical to large employers from a policy perspective, including market consolidation of health systems, drug pricing reform, value-based payment in employer plans, and how public option might mingle with ESI. Give it a listen. Thank you, Sean, so much for being here with me today. I'm really excited to talk about the purchaser point of view on some of these healthcare issues. We're going to jump right in and um, talk a little bit about a survey you all helped produce with the Kaiser Family Foundation, which indicated that business leaders believe the cost of health benefits will become unsustainable over the next five to 10 years. If employers, which are one of the communities with the greatest collective market clout, think it's time for greater government involvement in providing coverage, what kind of changes might that mean for employer-sponsored insurance? Thanks so much, Sandy, and, and thanks uh, for, for having me on. Uh, it's, a, it's a really important question that our members are trying to figure out themselves. Uh, at this point, most of our companies have found that they see real value in continuing to provide health coverage to their employees. Uh, they know that it is a significant recruiting tool. Uh, they know that it's valued by their employees. And, and at least public polling suggests that most uh, people who are covered by employer-sponsored insurance continue to think it's, it's valuable and high quality. That being said, uh, the, the actual you know, monetary value of employer-sponsored insurance has eroded over time. Uh, as costs have continued to skyrocket, employers have looked for opportunities to try to mitigate some of those costs. Uh, some of that goes into you know, things like value-based care. Some of it honestly means that uh, increasingly cost sharing and even uh, premiums are being passed on to employees, which is not ideal, but it's one of the various ways in which employers are trying to mitigate uh, their own increased costs. Uh, looking forward, I think the reason that our members and employers broadly are interested in more government involvement is that they see that that may be the only way that ESI is going to continue to be a viable source of coverage in the United States. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, they've recognized that they don't have as much market clout as they need to be able to negotiate better prices. And one of the challenges that we've heard from a lot of our members is they don't necessarily feel like the third party administrators, health plans, have been as effective at negotiating as they otherwise could be. But ultimately what it comes down to is really aggressive healthcare providers uh, that have consolidated massively uh, across the country, both in horizontal, horizontal and vertical consolidation, uh, have used their increased leverage to drive up prices. Uh, and there's very little that employers can do. Even some of the largest employers in the country are finding that they just don't have the size they need to be able to negotiate effectively. So they think that what we need to see is a greater degree of government involvement. The hope being uh, that it doesn't become a government takeover, but that it helps to uh, change some of the market dynamics. So by banning, for instance, some anti-competitive contracting that we see uh, between providers and, uh, and health plans, you'd be able to rectify the market, create a more level playing field, uh, and ultimately mean that we have a vibrant ESI system. Our thinking at this point is, if we're unsuccessful there, probably the next step will be what a lot of people fear, which is the government may start getting much more involved in actually delivering healthcare or in uh, being the primary source of coverage 
uh, not just in Medicare and Medicaid, but across the, the entire system, so-called Medicare for all. So let's talk about Medicare for a second. It has often been discussed as, you know, a useful tool, viable policy solution to curbing costs and providing broader access. Do you think we'll continue to hear more about this? And do you think that this is an effective approach to reducing costs and ensuring access to quality care? Uh, I think that lowering the Medicare age may very well be a viable policy. Um, we are in the process of, of thinking about both uh, Medicare eligibility as a leverage tool and the public option uh, as a leverage tool. And in some ways those two are sort of intermingled. Just one of them would only apply to, uh, to people of a certain age. You know, the other might apply across the board. Um, I think employers are particularly interested in at least investigating uh, the, what the possibilities might be on lowering the Medicare age. Uh, because when you look at, you know, the overall costs uh, for employer-sponsored plans, it's not surprising that the highest costs are generally associated with the people at the upper end of the, uh, of the age spectrum, right? So your average 50 or 55-year-old is paying roughly the same amount uh, in terms of a family premium as a younger worker, uh, but they cost the, the uh, company more. Um, Medicare has the ability to, uh, to set administrative prices, right? So we know that Medicare reimbursement is substantially lower than the prices that we have to pay in the commercial market, uh, which is why I think there's an, an interest in at least investigating whether it might be plausible to, at the company and maybe the employee choice, uh, move some employees over to the Medicare system where they could hopefully access high quality health care uh, but at a lower price point than what we're able, otherwise able to deliver uh, in the employer-sponsored plan. Um, whether or not that'll end up being effective at reducing healthcare costs, I would suggest probably that it would. Uh, again, given that the reimbursement rate is almost certainly going to be lower, and in some cases substantially lower than what we see in, in uh, the healthcare that we're able to provide. Uh, but the question uh, continues to come up of access and quality. Uh, as, you, as you suggested. Our companies want to make sure that, that their employees are able to access high quality care. Uh, there's not a whole lot of point in us providing uh, health coverage if, if we're not ensuring that. Uh, and there is some, some real concern that if you sort of turn the leash over and you say, you know, hey, we're no longer going to be in control. We're no longer going to be uh, working on behalf of the employees. We're simply going to move them over to Medicare, that we lose some of the ability to make sure that people do have access uh, and that the quality of care is as high as it, as it otherwise should be. So there's a balancing act that, uh, that I think companies are having to think through uh, as they think about whether or not it would make sense for them to, to move certain employees over to Medicare. We ha I feel like we have seen sort of a rise in the use of Medicare Advantage among the, among the employer-sponsored group. So that, that does seem to be occurring a little bit organically. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, in Medicare Advantage, um, it's, it's become obviously more and more popular across the board, but particularly for people who continue to be employed uh, past age 65, um, we found the Medicare Advantage is, is the direction that a lot of folks are moving. And just recently, I was talking to one of the senior folks at the trade associations representing the uh, health insurance industry, uh, and we were talking about, you know, the growth in Medicare Advantage and the fact that, frankly, uh, there's as much uh, revenue on the insurer side in Medicare Advantage as there is in private insurance. Um, 
it's, it's my guess, as we think about uh, lowering the Medicare eligibility age and the public option, that the most likely scenario is not that this would look like a sort of government-run plan, you know, out of the Humphrey building at HHS or, or run out of CMS up in Baltimore, but that in fact it would be sort of government-sponsored, but most likely uh, be administered in many ways the same way that Medicare Advantage is, which is to say, uh, you know, Aetna, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield would be actually administering the healthcare benefit, uh, which means that it, at least for a lot of employees, won't necessarily look substantially different than the experience that they have right now being covered by the same insurers, uh, but just on the employer dime as opposed to being uh, uh, overseen by the federal government through Medicare. Let's say for a second the U.S. does adopt a national public option. Uh, you mentioned that there are ways for that to play with Medicare and Medicaid. Can you talk a little bit more about that and also how it would interact with an employer-sponsored plan? Absolutely. So um, I guess clearly there's a lot of open, open questions about how a public option would operate. It's generally been my assumption that it will end up mimicking Medicare in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it just stands to reason that we already have a fairly well-established Medicare program that's pretty popular. If you were to create a public option, and a lot of Democrats have, have implied that this is the case, uh, it would probably have a lot of the same overall sets of benefits, uh, perhaps the same reimbursement style as Medicare. I think it's going to be less like uh, Medicaid in that it would be um, you know, run out of the federal government as opposed to a federalized system uh, where states are involved. And presumably, the reimbursement rate would be substantially above what Medicaid has. Um, so in, in, in that way, a, a public option and a expansion of Medicare eligibility age, this is where those two start, start to blend together uh, because the two might be quite similar in terms of program design. Um, as it kind of would interact with ESI, that's probably the biggest question that our members and, and us at PBGH are, are thinking about. Uh, so in the Affordable Care Act, the, one, of the, one of the most important aspects that keeps the individual market and the large group employer-sponsored market separate is uh, what is generally referred to as the firewall. So the ACA effectively says, if you as an employee have access to affordable employer-sponsored coverage, you can on your own dime uh, choose to forego that coverage and purchase coverage in the individual market, but you can't receive government subsidies to do so, right? So there's a, there's a pretty strong wall and almost no one out there who has access to ESI chooses to forego all of that and go into the individual market, which could be quite expensive. If you were to institute a public option, one of the first questions that policymakers would have to consider is, what do we do about the firewall, right? Are we, are we confining the public option to just being an additional plan that, uh, that would compete against the other plans in the individual market? Or are we opening it up to more people? If it's just in the individual market, I think its effect on the overall healthcare system would be somewhat limited, right? The individual market is not that large. Um, it is very expensive. Uh, and potentially, if you put in a public option that had lower reimbursement rates, it could pretty quickly gobble up market share in the space. Uh, but even if it took over the individual market, you're still only talking about, uh, you know, in the, in the tens of millions of people. If, however, you were to get rid of or somehow modify uh, the, the firewall, that's where ESI starts getting implicated. Uh, and that's where you start getting to the question of, do we as policymakers, speaking now for a second, uh, 
Do we want to provide people in ESI with additional choices? Do we think that the employer should have a choice as to whether their folks uh, exit the, the group health plan that's offered by the employer and go into a public option that would otherwise be available in the individual market? Do we think the employee should have a choice? Uh, all of those are questions that I think are gonna be central to the program design uh, and ones that we don't really have an answer to yet. But that is, in our, in, in, to our mind, one of the biggest questions about how a public option will work and I think is gonna be one of the biggest questions that if uh, policymakers ultimately do move on a public option that they're gonna need to answer because it really defines how big or not big, how big or small uh, the public option really is when it comes to changing the way that, that healthcare uh, is coverage is delivered in the United States. I think those are great questions that, and, and good luck finding the answers to them, but it, they, they are definitely crucial for getting to the root of how to successfully balance the two. So let's talk about value-based uh, payment real quickly. Are you seeing, what is the purchaser community's take on, on, on these programs? Are you seeing interest or growth in this area at all? Overall, I'd say we love value-based care. Um, we feel pretty strongly that we are substantially overpaying for the care that we, uh, that we pay for right now, uh, that our employees are not as well served in the fee-for-service system that they otherwise might be. But uh, we are not seeing nearly as much growth in value-based care as we'd like. Uh, and there's a couple of challenges there. One, um, as we all know, it's, it's difficult to figure out uh, reimbursement models that work for everyone. Um, two, we've not gotten enough leadership at the federal level uh, on promoting value-based care. We are working closely with and really pressuring uh, the folks in the administration, and particularly at CMMI, to be more aggressive about uh, taking a leadership position on promoting value-based care, both on the public side and on the private side. One of our big asks to CMMI right now uh, is to develop and ultimately mandate models that can, uh, can be cross-payer, uh, so involve both public and private payers. Uh, but three, to be totally frank, um, we have not seen as much excitement for or interest in moving to value-based payment from private insurers as we'd like. Uh, many of our members continue to pressure their TPAs uh, and the insurers in their area to move uh, aggressively towards value-based payment. And uh, there's been a lot of pushback from the private insurance industry. Uh, and so that's an area that, uh, that we need to continue to overcome. So at this point, you know, it's, it's our belief that we need to be moving much more quickly uh, toward value-based care. Uh, we need to make uh, value-based payment arrangements mandatory in the Medicare space uh, as quickly as possible. And uh, ultimately, uh, it's going to be incumbent on employers uh, to get serious with their, uh, their group health plans to say, we're no longer going to be paying uh, solely on a fee-for-service basis. We need to uh, put together total cost of care, um, population-based payment arrangements uh, that make ultimately the plan and the providers responsible for the cost of care, quality and access. So another big um, cost challenge is prescription drug pricing. What policy changes would make a meaningful difference in lowering costs in this area? Uh, this is, this is the, the multi-trillion dollar question of the day. Right, um, can you figure it out <laughs> Uh, yeah, an area that we're spending a lot of time on this year. I think if, if there's going to be any significant uh, federal change in, in 
health policy this year beyond, you know, just extending ACA uh, subsidies to more people or, or, or uh, making the subsidies permanent, the enhanced subsidies permanent. Uh, it's going to be on changes in the prescription drug space. Just today, uh, today is the 22nd of June, uh, we saw the uh, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden came out with a set of principles on what he wants to see in national and federal legislation on prescription drug pricing. Uh, a really strong set of principles that I think line up nicely with what, what we want to see uh, in the employer space. Um, there, are, there are sort of large and small things that could be done. On the small side, uh, you know, we support policies to substantially reform the PBM industry. Um, we, our members are very frustrated by, by PBMs uh, and our inability to understand what's inside the black box and understand whether or not uh, savings are being passed on to, uh, to the end users, to us, uh, us and our employees. Um, there are changes that could be made that help to at least curtail some of the real significant and pernicious gaming that we see by pharmaceutical manufacturers on uh, patents, patents and market exclusivity laws, that kind of thing. But ultimately, both of those things together, um, if, if enacted and put into effect, we don't think will have as much of an effect on the overall cost of drugs as we'd like to see, which is why PBGH and some of the other employer groups that that we uh, coordinate with, actually in a coalition called Employers Prescription for Affordable Drugs or Employers RX, um, support much more aggressive uh, action to try to bring down the cost of drugs. And in particular, uh, we support Medicare negotiation on uh, the cost of high cost drugs uh, and on new drugs entering the market. Um, we have, in principle, supported all of the policies that are included in HR3, the, the landmark legislation that passed the House last year and, and is likely to come back up in the House this year. Uh, the biggest issue that we face, and the reason that we did not support HR3 in, in previous Congresses, uh, is that the previous version did not necessarily apply all of the price protections uh, to private payers. So looking at HR3, uh, as passed by the House of Representatives in the previous Congress and as reintroduced uh, so far this year, it includes three major titles. The first one is Medicare negotiation. It effectively says that Medicare will negotiate on the price of new drugs entering the market uh, and on very high cost drugs currently on the market. We're very pleased with that first title. It applies the, uh, the new uh, negotiated uh, or set price to all payers. Uh, and it caps the rate of growth on those prices uh, to the rate of inflation using an excise tax uh, as a hammer. So it, it does what we need to do on the private side. The second title, however, uh, includes an inflation rebate on all drugs currently on the market, but that rebate only applies to the Medicare program, which we think leaves uh, private payers uh, potentially open to significant price increases. Uh, for drugs currently on the market and potentially could even lead to higher prices increases than you might otherwise uh, see through cost shifting. So we've been working closely with the House of Representatives to, uh, to make a change, to apply those, uh, those price caps across all payers to include the commercial market. And we have uh, strong indication, or I would even say uh, a commitment from House leaders that the final version of the bill will include that. Uh, and then uh, actually just today in Senator Wyden's uh, principles that he put out, he made it clear that he wants the Senate version of prescription drug reform to also include 
price protections on inflation for all payers, including uh, in the commercial side. So um, we're really pleased that there's, uh, that there's been a lot of positive movement on prescription drugs. There's still a big mountain to climb in this area. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry is easily the most powerful industry in healthcare. Uh, at least as, as a healthcare lobby in DC, possibly the most powerful industry of any lobby in DC. Uh, and they adamantly oppose uh, both the House legislation and what we expect uh, will come out of the Senate, which means employers, consumers, labor, health plans, you name it. Uh, we all need to work together to try to get this done this year. This is probably the most significant uh, policy opening we're going to have on stopping the egregious continuous growth and uh, growth in prescription drug prices. If we miss this window, it could be another decade or two before we get it again, uh, which is why we're, we're going all in on trying to get this done this year. All right, so that, that, that may have been one of the top issues that you guys are working on. Um, it's, it's obviously crucial. Um, it's crucial for our, our listeners as well. Um, my last question was, you know, what are the top two things that your group is working on with employers? So maybe that, it may be something else, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, certainly prescription drugs is in the top two. Uh, the, the second is also focused on the issue of prices and, uh, uh, and, and a distorted or broken market, but it's on the provider side. And, and it kind of goes back to some of the issues that I raised as we were talking earlier about lowering the Medicare age and, uh, and the public option. Uh, and it gets to market consolidation that we've seen in the provider sector. Um, so as you know, uh, Sandy, I used to represent hospitals actually for most of my career. Um, only the good guys, obviously. Uh, but one of the things we've seen literally just in the 15, 16 years that I've been working in DC is massive consolidation in the hospital and health system sector. Uh, both horizontal consolidation, where hospitals in, in a geographic area are buying other hospitals in a geographic area, but also vertical integration, creating these uh, really kind of comprehensive healthcare systems where they're able to, uh, to potentially manage a patient from you know, primary through tertiary care uh, and every kind of specialty you can think of. In principle, uh, that all sounds like it could be a good thing, right? And, and one of the ways that these, uh, that these mergers are, are sold to the public and, uh, and to regulators is, gosh, by being so much bigger, we're going to be able to bring down costs, we're gonna be more efficient, uh, we're gonna be able to provide much better coordinated care, and everyone is gonna be made better off. The problem is uh, that that almost never happens. Uh, the merger goes through, uh, and what we end up seeing is care coordination is just okay, quality doesn't improve meaningfully, and, and most importantly, we see uh, costs continue to skyrocket because once you become you know, the largest uh, or one of the largest health systems in a geographic area, you become large enough that you basically have to be in network for any employer. Uh, and so you have a lot of leverage over the large employers in your area, certainly over the small employers in your area, and over the health plans that are uh, negotiating on their behalf. So, uh, we are working our hardest to try to deal with what we think of as being a fundamentally distorted market. Uh, we are encouraging the current administration to be much more vigorous uh, about antitrust enforcement. Um, we're really pleased that the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, uh, actually has a long background in this. He worked very closely with PBGH and our members uh, and allies in California when he was the Attorney General uh, to take on the Sutter Health System in Northern California, which is 
one of the most aggressive uh, health systems in the country in terms of consolidation and then using their market clout to drive up prices. Um, PBGH and some of our members joined a class action lawsuit against Sutter. Uh, that lawsuit went on for about a decade uh, before, uh, before A.G. Becerra became the attorney general. Uh, when he came in, he took one look at, at the uh, situation and said, yeah, I'm going to join that case. And almost as soon as he joined uh, or, or sued on behalf of the state of California, uh, Sutter settled. Uh, and in that settlement, they are paying back uh, over $500 million in excess charges to employers in Northern California. But more importantly, uh, they are agreeing not to engage in some of the really egregious anti-competitive contracting uh, that they had done over the last couple of decades. Um, in particular, uh, under this, uh, the terms of the settlement, they will not be able to require what, what we call all or nothing contracts in which they say, uh, you know, if you're an employer, uh, you have to not just contract with us on radiology services or on our one hospital in Stockton, California, but if you want access to those things, you have to contract us with every service and every hospital and every uh, clinic that we have in our network many of which are, are very much overpriced. Um, the other thing that they are, uh, are not allowed to do is uh, ban tiering or steering of, of patients. This is one way that employers have attempted to try to drive value into the healthcare system by saying, hey, we know that you're overpriced or that you're priced higher than your competitors, so we're going to encourage our employees to go to a lower cost or higher quality provider uh, by giving them a, an advantage on, on co-pays, for instance. Uh, Sutter didn't allow us to do that, which meant that employees were often found themselves going to very high cost and often not terribly high quality providers because, uh, because that was what was forced to be available within their network. So uh, our goal now is to take those same sets of principles, those same uh, sets of policies and take them national. Uh, we've been working with members of Congress to reintroduce legislation that would ban a lot of the same anti-competitive practices that we saw Sutter used. Uh, I'm hopeful that in the next uh, couple of weeks, couple of months, we'll have legislation introduced uh, with our goal of trying to get it included in the end-of-the-year budget package. Um, it's, it's still, we're a long way from, from regaining a truly open market when it comes to, uh, to healthcare prices and uh, in the provider sector. Uh, but that is the ultimate goal, and we think that we are making progress. Related to that uh, is uh, just simply providing and ensuring much better price transparency than what we have now. Uh, the Trump administration, uh, to their immense credit, uh, finalized uh, two sets of uh, uh, price transparency rules, uh, one of which has gone into effect. So the hospital price transparency rule has been in effect since January. Not all hospitals are fully compliant. We're working hard to, uh, to work with the administration to make sure that hospitals come into compliance, but the information that is being made available under these rules uh, can be very useful to purchasers as we try to figure out whether or not our TPAs are negotiating well on our behalf, uh, to what extent certain hospitals are overpriced compared to other hospitals, et cetera. Uh, so over the next couple of years, we hope that that information will be uh, actionable and, and our, our members can use it as they work on their contract negotiations. Uh, and then similarly, uh, a rule that is just sort of one year behind in, term of, in terms of implementation is the group uh, health insurance tra price transparency rule. Um, it is not terribly popular among insurers, uh, but among purchasers, 
Uh, we're big fans. That rule will go into effect, uh, or hopefully will go into effect as scheduled on January 1. Uh, there are already efforts to try to delay implementation of that rule. And there are a few places where we think it may be necessary to provide a little bit of leniency as, as plans and employers uh, gather all of the information they need. Uh, but we think it's critical that purchasers and consumers have access to the price transparency that's going to be made available under those rules. So between uh, banning anti-competitive practices and mandating real price transparency, we're hopeful that we can start to uh, turn the corner on, uh, on some of the very high prices that we've seen uh, in the healthcare delivery sector. Well, I think that, that you know, that is great goals to be working on. And I, and I, you know, we look a lot at price transparency and, and how consumers can better get their hands on that information and use it. So um, maybe our next conversation can be about engagement in transparency tools. That would be terrific. And I know it's one of the challenges is particularly on the consumer side is how do you provide transparency information that is actually actionable by your, you know, your everyday consumer. And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but it's something that I know that, um, that you guys care about and that we care about, and we're hopeful that we can you know, continue to pull, push the ball forward there. Well, Sean, thank you so much. This is, it's so great talking to you. I always feel smarter afterwards, so um, thanks for spending this time with me. Thanks, Sandy. It's my pleasure. That was Sean Grumminger, Director of Health Policy at the Purchaser Business Group on Health. Thanks for listening.